Before I start, I need to give a disclaimer. This episode is very graphic and depicts some pretty terrible things happening to women and children, so if you are sensitive to that stuff, this episode is not for you. Now, let us begin. William Patterson was surprised to not see his family after returning home from work on June 10, 1927. He made his way to the neighbors, who normally watched the kids while his wife Emily was busy. The kids were there, but Emily wasn't, and the neighbor wondered why she hadn't returned to pick up her kids when she usually did. William was concerned, but had to take care of the children before he went off searching for Emily, So he took them home and tucked them into bed, promising that Mama would be home real soon. In truth, William Patterson was panicked, even more so when he entered the master bedroom and laid eyes on Patterson's suitcase. It was locked, usually, as that was where they kept their life savings, but now William could see that it had been opened and messed with— William looked inside and was horrified to find that not only was the money missing, but it had been replaced with a hammer. It didn't even occur to William that his wife might have run away. He knew that she hadn't, not with their kids still there. Overwhelmed, William dropped to his knees by the side of the bed and folded his hands in prayer. He begged God to help him find his wife or give him some sort of direction. He then rose from the bedside, his knee lifting the dust ruffle to reveal a familiar pattern under the bed. That's odd. It looked like the sweater Emily loved to wear around the house. William reached his hands under the bed and wrapped his hand around something cool and rigid. With a shock, he realized it was a hand, and so he looked under the bed to find the body of a woman— his wife, Emily, murdered and stuffed under the bed. William Patterson bolted out the door and over to the neighbor's house to fetch help. He barely got the words out of his mouth before collapsing. His neighbors returned to the Patterson home, lifted the master bed, and moved it several feet away from the wall to reveal the bloody and battered body of Emily Patterson. She had been beaten strangled to death, and then raped. Emily Patterson was the final victim of the Dark Strangler's murder spree. I'm Elise, and this is the historical true crime podcast, Old Leonard Nelson was born Farrell, and A. Farrell, his father's last name, from the Latin Fera, or wild beast. The Farrells left their infant son an orphan after they both died of syphilis within months of each other. Young Earl then went to live with his grandmother in San Francisco in 1898. Grandma Jenny Nelson loved Earl, but she already had children and other responsibilities to care for, 
and he was a difficult child from the start. Feral. Earl's parents had left him two gifts that would plague him for the remainder of his life. Syphilis, that would contribute to an ever-worsening madness, and his name, Feral, his fate. He grew into his name by refusing to show manners and take baths. He was erratic, hyperactive at times, but deeply depressed others, saying, according to Harold Schechter, I'm no good for anything. I will never be good for anything. Nobody wants me. I would be better off out of this world. He had a quick temper and often erupted in violent outbursts. His most savage of habits was Earl's ritual of drenching his meals in olive oil and then bringing the dish to his face and slurping it up as though he were an animal at a feeding trough. They began calling him the Wild Man of Borneo after a popular circus attraction of the time. He also had an obsession with the Bible, stemming from his grandma, a strict and devout Pentecostal woman, according to many sources. Former law professor and author of a book about Earl, Alvin Isau, argues that there's no evidence that his grandma actually was insanely religious, but wherever it was that Nelson picked up his love of the Bible, it stuck with him either way. Earl Nelson developed a fascination with the scripture, particularly its passages on the whores of Babylon and the beast of Revelation. Earl was aggressive with the other kids and also began shoplifting from a young age. He was only seven when he was expelled from school for theft, and he was only ten or eleven when he was on a bike trying to show off and do tricks for some other kids when he accidentally collided with a streetcar. The accident should have killed him, since it left a massive gaping wound in the back of his head that exposed his brain, but instead it left him in a coma for a week. For the remainder of his life, Earl would be plagued with terrible migraines as a result of the accident. Earl was always odd, but now he was even more so. After Grandma Jenny died, Earl went to live with his Aunt Lillian. Lillian had known Earl since he came to live with her family when she was only ten, though she always felt like more of a mother to him. Earl was difficult, but he had so many setbacks, and he was just a child. He had no one else, and he was her blood and kin, after all. Everyone who knew Earl knew him to be deranged, but not violently so. He just did such odd things. He would often leave the house in one set of clothes and then come home in something completely different, which was quite annoying when what he returned in was akin to rags. Sometimes he would come home with his underwear just inexplicably missing. This became the norm, though, as did his habit of walking on his hands in front of guests and his love of picking up chairs with his teeth. Lillian said of him, He was just like a child, and we considered him like a child, and of course we would never go too far with him because there was always the fear of him. 
There were times when they found him speaking with invisible people, sometimes saying that he saw faces on the walls. Earl himself confessed to being a, quote, compulsive masturbator, end quote, from the ages of 14 to 18, at which point he allegedly cured himself. He began engaging with prostitutes down near Fisherman's Wharf at the age of 15. He discovered alcohol young, too, and often disappeared on binges for weeks, sometimes even months at a time. He had dropped out of school when he was 14 and wandered the streets of San Francisco, doing who knows what to earn money. He often blew a ton of money on drinking and prostitutes, but he also often brought money home that Aunt Lillian and their family desperately needed. Earl was arrested in 1915 for housebreaking. Despite Aunt Lillian's pleading on his behalf, he was sent to San Quentin Prison for two years and then released in the middle of World War I. Earl enlisted in the military, but refused to do much of anything. He would walk away from his post if he decided it was too cold or too late, and no one could get him to do a chore if he felt that it was beneath him. No matter what punishment they threw at him, he would take it with indifference while continuing to do what he wanted to do. Consequently, he spent most of his time in the Naval Mental Hospital, where he was diagnosed as a constitutional psychopath. Blood tests showed that Earl had both syphilis and gonorrhea. After several escape attempts and one Houdini nickname, the authorities at the Napa Mental Hospital just said fuck it and discharged him, saying he was improved and not violent, homicidal, or destructive. Earl returned to Aunt Lillian and began working as a janitor at a hospital, where he met and fell in love with Mary Martin. Earl was as happy as he could be with his new wife, after they married, but the rest of San Francisco didn't see it the same way. Earl was 22, and his bride was a spinster at 58. She looked like she could be his mother or grandmother, and it was how he expected her to treat him, too. She was a mother to him in most ways, and was also a wife to him in the marriage bed, where he demanded sex nearly every night. He was incredibly jealous and flew into rages every time he saw her with another male, even if it was a relative. Earl suffered a migraine attack while at work at one of his odd jobs. He was standing on a ladder when it happened, and he fell and hit his head. He was unconscious in the hospital for two days before he broke out and returned home. Again, he began hearing voices and seeing things. He began to say that he looked a lot like Jesus Christ. His wife was growing afraid. Mary was a religious woman and would never divorce Earl, but after he attacked her while she was recovering from an illness, she denied that a separation was necessary. In one confrontation, Earl ripped the ring from Mary's finger, bloodying it. He flew into a rage, yelling, I'll get you, I'll get you yet. 
It was May of 1921 when Earl Nelson arrived at the home of Charles Summers to fix a gas leak. Problem was, Earl was not a plumber, as he pretended to be that day. Charles Summers admitted Earl to the home, and he went down to the basement where Charles' 12-year-old sister Mary was playing with some of her toys. At some point, with Charles upstairs and Earl alone with little Mary, he threw his hands around her throat and began to choke her. Mary was a strong girl, though, and kicked and screamed and fought until her brother heard and ran to her rescue. Earl took off and tried to flee, but Big Brother gave chase and followed him out of the house. After a fight in the street, Charles was knocked to the floor, and Earl fled. When the police apprehended Earl Nelson about two hours later, he was taken to jail and photographed, with scratches covering his face. On his first day in prison, Earl plucked out every single one of his eyebrow hairs using only his fingernails, and then ranted about seeing faces in the wall. A psychiatric review found that he was apathetic, eccentric, noisy, destructive, and incendiary. Furthermore, he was restless, violent, dangerous, excited, and depressed. Earl Nelson, at that point, was considered, quote, so far disordered in his mind to endanger health and person, end quote, and was then committed, again, to the Napa State Mental Hospital. There he was diagnosed, again, as a, quote, constitutional psychopath with outbreaks of psychosis, end quote. Part of Nelson's treatment included the drug Salversan. Salversan, released only in 1910, just a decade or so after both of his parents had died, made syphilis a curable disease. And with the drug, his mental condition began to improve. His outbursts became less frequent, and there was a good chunk of time when Nelson seemed relatively at peace and making progress though still zealously into the Bible and the Book of Revelation. Until he began to refuse treatments, and his mental health continued to decline. In November of 1923, Nelson, a.k.a. Houdini, again broke out and made his way all the way back to Aunt Lillian's after nearly four years away where he scared the shit out of her by standing in front of a window and staring in like a creep until he got her attention. Lillian took him in, fed, cleaned, and clothed him, told him to go, and then called the authorities to let him know he had been there. He was picked up two days later, and then served the remainder of his four-year sentence. He was inexplicably discharged as improved, in 1925, at 28 years old. It was less than a year later when Earl Nelson found himself staring up at a San Francisco boarding house with a vacancy sign in the window. 
The widow Clara Newman ran a respectable boarding house and refused drinkers and sailors. When Nelson knocked on Mrs. Newman's door, she would have opened it to find a normal-looking young man. Whatever his issues, he was aware of how his appearance affected others and for the most part knew when he was supposed to look presentable. Whether or not he chose to be presentable was on him. This day he was, and told Mrs. Newman that he was interested in renting a room, and wanted to see it and make sure it was up to his standards. The sixty-year-old widow let him in and escorted him inside. Her nephew, Merton Newman, was also at the home that day, where his aunt had entertained some guests before receiving a knock at the door. Merton went downstairs and saw the sausage his aunt had started cooking for lunch in the kitchen, but something had apparently interrupted her, for she was no longer there. Merton turned around to find a man walking down the hallway, headed for the back door. His coat collar was turned up, and he had his hat pulled down over his face. Merton called out, asking if he could help with anything. The man replied, "'Tell the landlady I will return in an hour. I wish to rent the bedroom.' The stranger then rushed out of the house. Thinking nothing of it, Merton went back to reading the newspaper upstairs. When he came back down several hours later, he peered into the kitchen to see the same sausage lying out in the frying pan, only this time it was in a puddle of congealed fat. Now Merton was concerned and remembered the stranger, so he began searching the house. He knocked on the door of another lodger, who also remembered Mrs. Newman showing the available apartment to someone. Not finding her in the rest of the home, Merton went to the vacant apartment and tried the door. It was locked. Merton stepped back, then sent the door flying backward with a kick of his foot. The tiny room seemed to hold just one thing. Mrs. Newman, lying on her left side with the dress pulled up around her waist, and wooden beads from her broken necklace scattered about the floor. Merton screamed for help, then dropped to the floor and began shaking his aunt's lifeless body. Mrs. Newman's autopsy found that the cause of death was murder by strangulation, as revealed by two thumb-shaped bruises on the elderly woman's neck. The papers reported that she had been criminally attacked, which was code for rape at a time when people didn't like to print that word in the newspapers. The papers left out the fact that this criminal attack occurred not before or during her strangulation, but after her death. This fact would not make it known to the public until way later. The next attack was not far away in the city of San Jose. 64-year-old Laura Beale lived in the apartment complex that she owned and managed with her husband. She opened the door to Earl Nelson on March 2, 1926. He was asking to view the sole vacant apartment. 
Her husband did not find Laura at home when he got there, so he began searching for her. He found her in the vacant apartment, brutally murdered with bruises covering her face, and her dress hiked up around her waist. She had been strangled with the silk belt from her gown, which had been wound so tightly around her neck that it was embedded in her skin, according to Harold Schechter. Other women were attacked by a man of a similar description. Medium height, but powerfully built. White, but with dark skin, perhaps some sort of immigrant like Italian or Greek, witnesses speculated. D.L. Courier was attacked by a man who choked her until she passed out, but then later awoke. Unlike Mrs. Newman and Mrs. Beale. E.R. Vickers was also attacked by a man who went to view a rental apartment, as was Edna Martano and Ethel Ellert. 21-year-old Regina Bircher saw the strangler scale her eight-foot-tall backyard fence. She called for her husband, but the intruder was gone by the time he got down there with his shotgun to look. Once he had gone back to work, the strangler returned, jumping over the fence and chasing her through the yard. She bit and kicked at him until she was able to get inside and lock the door behind her. After the brutal murder of two elderly women, the newspapers began to speculate there was a killer roaming the Bay Area. The Dark Strangler, they began to call him. Plenty of arrests were made, but they were all let go for a lack of evidence, or when the Strangler attacked another woman. Because it obviously wasn't the guy sitting in a cell. But then an entire month passed without any women being murdered, and everyone held their breath, hoping that was the end of the Dark Strangler. And then Lillian St. Mary was murdered in San Francisco. She was discovered by one of her boarders, Mr. Bryan, who was climbing the stairs after getting home from work when he noticed that someone had left the vacant room's door ajar. It was usually closed, so it caught his attention. He peered into the doorway to see the figure of a woman splayed out on the bed. She was lying on her back, but she was clearly dead. Her mouth was agape, her eyes were bulging, and her legs were splayed wide open. Mr. Bryan flew down the staircase and telephoned the police. The police found a urine stain in the middle of the room, and that, together with the fact that Mrs. St. Mary still had her glasses on her face, told them that the attack came as a surprise to her as she stood in the middle of the room. The dark strangler choked her with his hands as he knelt on top of her body, his weight was too much for her 63-year-old frame, causing her ribs to crack and splinter, which punctured her lungs and heart. Curiously, the killer left her pearl necklace and diamond earrings behind. But again, he sexually assaulted the woman after her death. Police surmise that whoever this dark strangler was, his motive wasn't money. What his motives actually were, they couldn't fathom. 
The term serial killer had not even been invented yet, and so the best society could do was compare the Dark Strangler to other monsters, like Jack the Ripper or Chicago's H.H. Holmes. Indeed, one paper nicknamed him Jack the Strangler. The reality was that Earl Nelson wasn't looking for money when he decided to murder these women. He was looking for the women themselves, the objects of his wrath, the origin of all his disappointments. Don't get me wrong, Nelson did tons of stealing from the women he killed, but the money he made would just finance his next murder. Nelson roamed the state looking for his opportunity to get women who reminded him of his strict but beloved grandmother, alone. Then, strangle them to death and violate their corpse when they were no longer able to resist. Nelson did not stop hunting as everyone hoped. This was just the lull in between sprees. All of San Francisco and San Jose were in a panic. Police warned women who operated in boarding homes or apartment complexes to watch who they opened their doors to and to take every precaution when they did. Although she lived further south in Santa Barbara, California, Mrs. Ollie Russell had also heard of the Dark Strangler and took precautions when showing off rooms in her boarding home by removing her jewelry and hiding it beforehand and that sort of thing. For whatever reason, when Mrs. Russell opened the door, she trusted the man she saw outside enough to allow him in. Her body was discovered by another lodger. He woke to banging sounds, and when he went to investigate, he peered through the keyhole into what should have been a vacant room, only to see a man bent over a woman on the bed, having sex with her. He watched long enough to see the man stop and pull up his pants, and then long enough to see that the woman on the bed looked a lot like Mrs. Russell. The lodger was embarrassed to catch the couple in such a private act, but the more he thought about it, the more confused he became. And as he became confused, he became concerned. Mrs. Russell was not the sort of woman to cheat on her husband, and he had never seen that man before. He had a strange look to him now that he thought of it. The man went to go fetch her husband, and when the two returned to the bedroom and opened the door, they found Ollie Russell there, dead, strangled. She was 53 years old. The Dark Strangler then made his way back up to Oakland for his next victim, 51-year-old Mrs. Mary Nesbitt. Stephen Nesbitt arrived home on August 16th to find a kitchen prepared for making dinner, but no wife. He assumed she had to run out for some last-minute item and would be right back, but when she wasn't, he went looking for her. He checked with her friends and then peered into the vacant apartment the couple owned, and didn't find her there either. Finally, at 7.30, he called the police who tried to calm him down and asked him to wait a little while longer before the police stepped in to help. Stephen Nesbitt then hung up and then continued to search, thinking that while he had appeared into the vacant apartment, he still hadn't fully searched it. 
She wasn't in any of the main living areas, nor was she in the bedroom, so he walked into the bathroom just to be sure, and found her, face down with her face bruised and battered, then choked to death with a kitchen towel. Stephen was suspected, as husbands usually are, but he was so apoplectic that those who saw him knew he could not have been responsible. It's hard to imagine that anyone would have reacted differently to finding Mrs. Nesbitt, much less her husband. Her death was particularly gruesome. The strangler had bashed her head into the bathroom floor tiles, sending blood and teeth flying across the room. The dark strangler choked her with a dish towel with such force that the fabric tore. By this point, witness descriptions of the dark strangler circulated in newspapers. Some who saw him said he had freakishly long arms and big hands. Nearly every description of him commented on his tawny skin. Guesses at his ethnicity were common, though Nelson really was just a white guy. Still, from his crimes, the paper began to talk of the strangler with racist overtones. The free press commented, quote, His face is extremely sallow, almost the tinge of ripe olives. The yellow flash of his eyes has a peculiar effect against the sallowness of his skin. His lips are wide and bulging, almost negroid in shape. End quote. Most still referred to him as the Dark Strangler, but a new nickname was taking hold. The Gorilla Man. The Gorilla Killer. So much so that San Francisco Police Chief O'Brien made it a point to warn women that the Strangler, quote, is not of repulsive appearance. It is a mistake to believe that he has the features of an ape or gorilla, or that he is uncouth in speech or manner he is able to gain amicable footing with women through his suave manner. End quote. Beata Withers was the next victim, though not in California, but up in Portland, Oregon. The 35-year-old corpse was discovered in the attic by her 15-year-old son. Two days later, the body of Virginia Grant was located behind a furnace, and several days after that, Mabel Fluke's body was discovered in an attic crawl space. It would take time to discover their bodies, but three Portland women were murdered in the span of three days. Mrs. Grant was 59, but Mrs. Withers and Mrs. Fluke were in their mid-thirties. It seemed as though the Dark Strangler was drawn to more than just the elderly. But then there was another lull, no activity until November 18, 1926, and now the Dark Strangler was back in San Francisco. He came for 56-year-old widow Willie Anna Edmonds, who was trying to sell her home. Mrs. Edmonds lived right across from the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, Hers was a big, beautiful home, but since it was just her in the house, with her husband dead and her son grown, she was getting lonely and decided to sell the home and get something more comfortable. 
when her son came to visit her to discuss her upcoming 56th birthday, she was nowhere to be found. He found her body inside her radio room, where she liked to relax and listen to the radio. She had been strangled and then violated. The very next day, the strangler was back at it for the pregnant 28-year-old Mrs. Murray. She was trying to get her house sold, and the man she was showing it to kept trying to get her to look up at the ceiling, but there was something off about the man, and she wasn't feeling at ease. When the strangler finally attacked her, she threw herself out of a screen door and ran screaming to the safety of the street, while the strangler fled. San Francisco had become too hot for Earl Nelson at this point, so he moved north, arriving in Seattle, Washington, in the middle of November. The next victim was the bedazzled Florence Monks. The woman really loved her jewels. She kept $5,000 worth of diamond rings on her hands, $3,000 worth of jewels around her neck and wrists, then there was the sack of diamonds she kept strapped to her right leg for safekeeping, along with several other items that she pinned to her underwear. Her friends warned her to be careful, but as I said, Mrs. Monks really liked her jewels. In any case, the strangler wasn't after her jewels, though he did take them when he left. The dark strangler knocked on the door of the house Mrs. Monks was trying to sell, on November 23rd. After Mrs. Monks had not been seen for a while, her friends looked around for her and became more worried when they discovered her car was still at home in the garage. When the caretaker she hired arrived at the home just afterward and let himself in, he was alarmed to find drawers had been ransacked and left open. Earlier, Mrs. Monk's friends had searched the house, except for the basement, because they couldn't find the light switch. When the caretaker went down there and turned on the light, his eyes caught on a trail that led from the stairs to behind the furnace, where he discovered Mrs. Monk's corpse. After Mrs. Monk's murder, the Dark Strangler officially became national news. Seattle Police Chief was positive Monk's was killed by the Dark Strangler, and not just someone interested in her jewels. The chief declared the Strangler to be, quote, the most cunning and cold-blooded killer in the annals of Pacific Coast crime whose perverted senses delight in the throttling of helpless women. He speaks good English, is ingratiating in the extreme, is of vigorous constitution, brawny of build though fairly short of stature, and has the smooth olive complexion of a man of Italian or Serbian descent. He did not kill for profit, Chief Searing maintained, he killed for the satisfaction it gave him. Nelson was meanwhile staying at another boarding home. It seems as though if he targeted a house and then later decided it was too risky with too many other people in the home or something like that, he would often decide to stay there, 
which is what he did at the home of Mrs. Gaylord. And here, Nelson decided to be nice, surprising her and another elderly woman in the home with an elaborate Thanksgiving dinner. The women remembered the boarder fondly, particularly as he gifted them with expensive jewelry just before leaving the home. He said he wanted to give them something as they had so little. The jewels were Mrs. Monk's. By the time Earl Nelson had become national news after murdering Mrs. Monks, the Dark Strangler had killed ten women. It had been about nine months since he first killed Clara Newman in San Francisco. His rampage was not even halfway through. A week after killing Mrs. Monks, Nelson was back in Portland where he strangled 48-year-old Blanche Myers. And then the Strangler moved east, and after about a month's hiatus, he attacked and killed Almira Clements Berard, 40. Bonnie Pace of Kansas City, Missouri was next. She was only 23. Exactly one day later, Marius Harpin came home from work to find a tragedy. His 28-year-old wife, Germania, had been strangled to death, and so had the couple's nine-month-old son, Robert. He would be the first child strangled, and the only male. Police and historians speculate that the infant began crying during his attack on Germania, and the strangler killed the boy just to stop his crying. On other occasions, he let other infants live. After the Harpins, the Dark Strangler went on hiatus for about four months, and then reappeared all the way in Philadelphia with the murder of Mary McConnell on April 27, 1927. Her son-in-law found her body stuffed under the bed, strangled with a dust rag, and then had a sock stuffed down her throat. Three days later, the Dark Strangler was in Buffalo, New York. Poor Mrs. Jenny Randolph had lost both her husband and her son, and after a struggle to find meaning in her life after their deaths, she threw herself into philanthropy and the church, thinking that she could use the remainder of her life to do some good in this world. Each week, she and several other women would take baby clothing into the slums to help the impoverished families who lived there. Mrs. Randolph lived with her older brother and a 22-year-old lodger named Merritt that she had all but adopted, along with two other boarders living in the home. Jenny Randolph had more rooms to rent, though, hence the Rooms to Let sign out in the front window. Earl Nelson saw the sign and inquired about the room, but when he found the home full of other people, he hesitated. He told Mrs. Randolph that the amount was too much, and they began to haggle, but she stood her ground. Nelson thanked her, and then left. He returned at around six, apparently unable to find other lodgings, 
and likely hoping he would have the chance to get Mrs. Randolph alone at some point during his stay. He gave her money for his lodgings and then went to his room. Three days later, some lodgers and Mrs. Randolph stayed up late talking, and the others excused themselves, until finally it was just her and the new lodger, Earl Nelson, disguised as Mr. Harrison, a house painter. The next morning, when Mrs. Randolph did not wake and start making her breakfast, her brother and the young lodger Merritt went looking for her. A trail of drying blood on the kitchen floor sent them into a panic. The trail continued up a staircase, which they followed into the new lodger's bedroom. They kicked down the door, and upon seeing her feet sticking out from under the bed, the men shoved the bed off of her to reveal a horrific scene. Her face, black and blue, covered in scratches and caved in where she had been beaten. She was naked from the waist down and garroted with a kitchen towel. Nelson then packed up and moved to Detroit where he targeted his next victims. 29-year-old Maureen Oswald had taken her husband's name when she married, along with converting to Hinduism, and became Naresh Chandra Atorthi. By 1927, she was divorcing her husband for abuse and infidelity. She then moved into a boarding home managed by the 53-year-old widow, Fanny May. When the landlord came to collect the rent from May and received no reply after three days, he grew worried and contacted the police. The landlord and two officers then entered the home and found the two women dead, both in separate bedrooms. Police believe that Fannie Mae was murdered first, and then the killer waited for the other lodger, Maureen, to return before killing her, too. Both were strangled and raped after death. Mary Sietsima of Chicago was next, strangled in her living room with a telephone cord. She was only 27. It was now June of 1927, 16 months after the Dark Strangler began his spree, and 20 official murders later. The United States had never seen anything like it. The closest they had gotten to their own Jack the Ripper was H.H. H. Holmes, who terrorized Chicago back in the 1890s. Earl Nelson had already surpassed Holmes with his official death count, and now that he was national news, he realized the need to keep moving. So, the Dark Strangler crossed the border into Canada and headed for Winnipeg. My family has always been kind of nuts when it came to playing board games, like knock down drag out fights where my grandma would damn me to hell and Monopoly pieces were chucked at people's faces. Very intense. Anyway, one of our favorites was Ticket to Ride, where you would have to build a bunch of train tracks across the board, which was a map of North America. The running joke in our family was never go to Lusapeg. Lusapeg was Winnipeg, 
Because no matter what, if your railway had a connection in Winnipeg, you would start losing. We could never figure out what it was that made Winnipeg such bad luck, but we always stay clear of the city when playing that game. It's one of the life lessons I've learned from playing board games. Never go to Lusipeg. Earl Nelson arrived in Lusipeg in the beginning of June 1927. He sought lodgings at the boarding home of Mrs. Hill, whom, you will be happy to hear, was not eventually murdered. Mrs. Hill actually sticks around, though not for a lack of Nelson's trying. Mrs. Hill's boarding home simply had too many lodgers living in it for him to murder her. He arrived posing as Mr. Woodcoats. After murdering Mrs. Sietsima, he stopped into a shop where he asked the man behind the counter if he would take all the clothes on his back in exchange for any clothing the man had on hand, plus one dollar. Nelson now had one dollar more and a new appearance, a trick which he played throughout his murder spree. Nelson haggled with Mrs. Hill until she agreed to let him a smaller room for $3 a night, which he would give her the dollar for, then pay back the other $2 before he left. Lola Cowan was 14 years old. Her father was recovering from a stay at the hospital, and so her already struggling family was even more desperate to bring money into the home to make up for his lost earnings. Lola and her sister were selling paper flowers to help. Her sister used color papers to twist and wrap into the shape of sweet peas, and it was Lola's job to go around the neighborhood selling them. Regina Bannerman saw Lola on the evening of June 9th when she knocked on her door selling the flowers from her tin lunchbox. Miss Bannerman declined, saying she had no money. William Fillingham also answered the door to decline Lola's offer, but stopped to ask her a bit about why she was selling them. He thought it odd she was selling them so late and told Lola that she should probably head home. It was late and she wasn't likely to sell any more flowers at this time. It's unknown whether Lola was going to follow his advice, the police think it likely that she encountered Nelson on the street, and she agreed to follow him back to Mrs. Hill's boarding house so that he could retrieve some money to buy her flowers. At 11 p.m., another lodger was returning to his room at Mrs. Hill's boarding house when he noticed Mr. Woodcote's door had been left open. It was dark inside, but it looked vacant, and it was vacant when Mrs. Hill walked up there the next morning. She assumed Mr. Woodcoats went off to work early and looked around the room, but there was not much tidying to do, so she left and closed the door behind her. Lola Cowens never made it home that evening, and her family was in a panic. They called who they could, and then, after a sleepless night, set out to look for her. Not finding her, they filed a police report. The next day, Saturday, Lola's mother visited a fortune teller who said a dark man in a blue suit would bring her news of Lola before Monday. 
Sunday, Lola's father attended an evening church service to pray for his missing daughter, and upon returning home, overheard news that a young girl's body had been discovered dead in a boarding house. Her mother was at home when a policeman, a dark man in a blue suit, knocked on her door to ask her to come view the body of a young girl they suspect may be her missing daughter. The day after he murdered Lola Cowens, Earl Nelson appeared on the doorstep of Emily and William Patterson, Irish immigrants who had just moved into their rental home two weeks earlier. Emily had dropped their kids off at their neighbors in the morning, and then answered a knock on the door sometime before noon. Her husband returned home that night, and after putting his kids to bed, and kneeling beside the bedside to pray, unwittingly discovered Emily's corpse. Mrs. Hill woke at her boarding home the following morning to read of Emily Patterson's murder with horror. Thus, she wasn't surprised when the police knocked on her door that day, asking about her boarders, and if any of them had left abruptly or done anything odd. For all she knew, Mr. Woodcoats was still there, and so, no, all of her boarders were accounted for. But after the police left, Mrs. Hill walked upstairs to check on Mr. Woodcoats' room. A stench hit her once she opened the door, so she hurried to open the window, thinking that Woodcoats was just very unhygienic and stinky. The room appeared to be in exactly the same condition as when she had last checked it, meaning that Woodcoats had not been back to the room, meaning he had left, meaning he had not repaid the money he owed her. And then Mrs. Hill realized this also meant she had accidentally lied to the police, for Woodcoats had up and disappeared. Mrs. Hill told her husband, who told the police at about 6 p.m., but even before the police could respond, a fellow lodger, Mr. Mortensen, had made a startling discovery when walking upstairs to his room. All the other days, Woodcote's door was closed, but now it was open and Mortensen could see into the room as he climbed the steps, putting him at eye level with the floor. It was as though fate had finally decided to intervene. Mortensen had walked up the stairs at just the time when the sun shone through the window that Mrs. Hill had just opened, and threw rays of sunlight onto the bed Woodcoats had slept on and just underneath. The light illuminated the naked, prone body of a young girl, Mortensen turned around and skied down the stairs, shouting, Mrs. Hill, upstairs, somebody there. Mrs. Hill just stood there staring at him and trying to figure out what the hell he was saying, so he grabbed her by the elbow and escorted her to the stairs and pointed out the body. Under there! Hill and Mortensen climbed the steps and kneeled beside Woodcote's bed, then lifted the duvet. There was a dead girl. Oh, God, Mrs. Hill shrieked. It's dead. Quick, the police. When the police and Mr. Hill arrived, 
The bed had been pushed aside to reveal the girl, laying on her side with her legs bent in a sort of fetal position. Mrs. Hill described her. She was very young and pretty. Her neck was all black. Lola Cowan's mother was escorted to the undertaker's, just as her father had arrived there after hearing rumors of a girl's murder. Mrs. Cowan couldn't bring herself to look, so Mr. Cowan did. It was her. The murdered girl was Lola Cowan. At this point, Schechter describes all of Winnipeg being essentially on holiday, with all the stores closed and everyone keeping their kids at home. Everyone was searching for the Strangler, or the Gorilla Killer, as he was now just starting to be called. A reporter in Winnipeg had overheard some women talking and referring to the killer as the Gorilla Man, and he liked it enough to keep using it in the paper. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force was hunting him down, following tips sent by civilians who had seen him, like the barber who finally gave Nelson a shave and noticed scratches and dried blood in his hair. The police finally caught up to him about five miles from the U.S. border, when a shopkeeper recognized him and pulled his shotgun on him. Nelson swore that he was Virgil Wilson, a day laborer, but neither he nor the police believed him. He was arrested on June 15th. And then the great Houdini picked the double lock of his cell using only a nail file and broke free once more. The Manitoba Free Press wrote, In custody, but out again. Such is the recent episode in the hunt for the Strangler, the gorilla, who has left a trail of death and fear across the continent. He didn't go far, though. At this point, it's hard to tell if Nelson wanted to get caught, if his mental condition had deteriorated so badly that he was making terrible decisions, or if he honestly believed he was some indestructible superman. He was not, though, and when he confronted a farmer while wearing weird-ass clothes and hockey skates with the blades torn off of them as shoes, he was recognized reapprehended and reincarcerated. Never should have gone to Lusipeg. The Winnipeg Tribune called him the greatest murderer since Jack the Ripper. He was wanted for murder in five U.S. cities, but Winnipeg was intent on keeping him there in Canada. There was not much to the trial. There was too much evidence against him, and too many people hated Nelson and wanted him to suffer for what he had done to all those innocent women and children. They viewed him as a monster that needed to be put down. Clarence Darrow heard of the case and was asked if he would defend Nelson, but declined because he was taking a break from the law. He still made it a point to say that Nelson should not be hanged either way, since Darrow was staunchly anti-death penalty. Despite the hordes of evidence and witness testimony, Earl Nelson maintained his innocence to the end. 
He remained indifferent in court, often yawning during incredibly dramatic and intense moments. He didn't think he needed a lawyer. When a reporter asked him, like, what about all the 60-plus witnesses they have against you? Nelson responded, All of them are wrong. Murder just isn't possible for a man of my high Christian ideals. Despite Daryl's admonition, Earl Nelson was found guilty and then sentenced to death. When they hanged him on a Friday the 13th, 1928, he did not die quickly with a neck snap. He dangled on the rope for about 11 minutes before being officially declared dead. He died denying all of his crimes. I never murdered anybody. Never, 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 Nelson maintained. I have been unfortunate from the day of my birth. I've been handicapped by the sins of my parents, who left a taint in my blood that's caused me all kinds of agony of body and mind. He couldn't help being born feral. His final words were, reportedly, I forgive those who have wronged me. Mrs. Hill felt wronged, too, and continued to complain about the two dollars that Nelson said he would pay her, and did not. Imagine taking a room for a week and never paying for it, she complained. Back when he was caught, her husband warned her, Better watch out when you go identify him, he said. Keep your hands off him. Don't try to hit him. Hit him? Why, I'd crucify him if I could, she retorted. Mr. Hill tried to calm her down, telling her not to talk that way. Tell you what I will do, though, she said. I'll ask him for the two dollars he owes me. As for the real victims, it's hard to say exactly how many there were. Harold Schechter's Bestial, which is about the Dark Strangler, puts his official death count at 22. But then he goes on to list quite a few other women who were possibly killed by him as well. Schechter gives the lowest number as his death count, the official total. Since his book was published in 1998, some historians have raised that number to 25, because they believe that Nelson also probably committed three murders in Philadelphia in autumn of 1925, months before his official first killing of Clara Newman in San Francisco. Ola McCoy, May Murray, and Lillian Weiner all strangled to death and then raped. The murders, all in Philadelphia, occurred in a string with the first on October 18th, the next November 6th, and the third on November 9th. The first, Ola McCoy, received very little newspaper coverage because she was, as the papers wrote, colored. She was the strangler's only black victim and was strangled to death in her parlor, not far from the next victim's house. She was then carried upstairs and sexually assaulted, just as the Dark Strangler did with many of his victims. She was bound and gagged with a towel, 
later stuffed down her throat. There was a room for rent sign out front, and her baby was still sleeping in the next room, unhurt. Alvin Isao, the retired law professor who turned his attentions to true crime, wrote a recent book called The Gorilla Man Strangler Case, and is working on a follow-up book to it which discusses all of the murders that could be attributed to Earl Leonard Nelson. He's calling it 31 Murders, as in there are nine more murders that Isao will be accusing Nelson of. So many women were strangled to death in the mid to late 1920s. Becomes hard to sort them all out, particularly with someone like Nelson who roamed the continent, and particularly when his victims were women that society didn't particularly care about. Isao speculates that Nelson very likely began by murdering sex workers before turning to killing elderly women, women who reminded him of his grandmother. Even beyond Isao's count of 31, there are still more women he thinks may have been connected to Nelson, but doesn't have enough evidence to prove. Like 25-year-old Vera Stone, aka Butterfly, a call girl found strangled to death in her Los Angeles apartment in April of 1924, long before Ola McCoy had even been killed. Other women possibly killed by the Dark Strangler are Elizabeth Jones of San Francisco in August 1925, 32-year-old Elma Wells of San Francisco, 75-year-old Isabel Gallegos of Stockton in August of 1926, and Marion Corcoran of Los Angeles, who was killed on November 11, 1926. I doubt we will ever know the real number of women murdered by Earl Leonard Nelson. What I am certain of is Nelson's hatred of women. With the exception of one infant child who was likely killed because he was crying too loudly, all of the Dark Strangler's victims were women. He had a clear M.O., which was to target older women who were trying to rent out a room or sell their home to gain entrance, and then, once inside, strangle the women until they could no longer resist him. Then, he would sexually assault them, making him a true necrophiliac. According to Mark Ribbon, quote, "...serial killers, for the most part, are made, not born." They develop over time because of mental disease or defect in environment. End quote. And some of these serial killers choose so-called oppressors to act out on. In Nelson's case, this is presumably his grandmother, who is described as strict and insanely religious. And let's not forget Nelson's obsession with the Bible. He was seen to obsess over one passage about the Whore of Babylon— after he was arrested, a prison guard found that he had been reading Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe thy ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, 
and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. It's not the most female-friendly passage to obsess over, let's just say that. Earl Nelson never should have gone to lose a peg. I would call it a win for everyone else, though. One more episode left this season, folks. Stay tuned for episode 50, holy crap, in three weeks. Shout out to new Patreon member Justin W. Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you tons. If you would also like to support us, head to patreon.com slash oldbloodpodcast. The most recent season is still available to all, but all the rest, all of the older episodes, are now on Patreon for subscribers. And please keep the reviews coming if you enjoyed the show. They really do help. As always, check our show notes for a list of our sources, or head to oldbloodpodcast.com. Photos and more information about the case will be posted on our Instagram, so find us there by searching for Old Blood Podcast. Music credits to Facillion Studios. Yeah.